That jarring mix of themes, old and more recent, tells you that you're listening to the Power of Three podcast, where three lifelong, grumpy, middle-aged Doctor Who fans discuss, enthuse and occasionally criticise the televised, novelised and audio adventures of our favourite time-travelling hero. Hello from me, Tom Harris, and hello from my two co-conspirators. Say hello, Kenny. Hello, Kenny. Say hello, Davey. Hello, Tom. How are you? It's nice to have an adult with us, David. I'm very well, thank you. <laughs> well, we're talking about creepy crawlies today, aren't we, guys? Something that really bugs you. Something yes, that bugs me. <laughs> I, I mentioned to my son, he asked me what the subject was this week, and I said, well, it's insects. And he said, oh, you do planet spiders. And I thought, you know, is, is this really what modern education has come to? <laughs> I'm with you. So we've we've picked three adventures, um, two television adventures, one audio adventures that involve insects in some way, usually giant ones. Tell me, we all know what the three are and we'll reveal them shortly. Are there any other, I mean, it seems to me big insects is a kind of common theme for science fiction. Has it been quite common in Doctor Who over the years? I mean, are there others that we could have done that we haven't done for this, that we haven't chosen for this podcast? Aside from spiders, obviously. <laughs> Which we know are not insects. Indeed. Being arachnids. It's funny how those, you know, we get um, inspired by the things that we don't like. Um, Big Finish have created a few. There's been some uh, centipede-like creatures called the Trell, which the Doctor and Lucy Miller encountered. And we've also had the Cromen, who were insectoid, who the Eighth Doctor and Charlie faced when they met Keres in the Creed of the Cromen. But really, it tends to be more familiar animals that um, we've seen what Russell T. Davis did with his anthropomorphization of the likes of cats and yeah. rhinos. Um, but really, insects aren't one that they haven't touched on that often. The obvious one that we could have discussed was the Green Death with the maggots and the flies, but of course, of course. we have touched on that uh, previously when we did the Season 10 box set on Blu-ray. The only one I could think of was the Ark in Space with the Wirren. Oh, that's a good one, actually. Yeah, I forgot about that. Quite a, quite a good, strong, insecty vibe going on there. Yeah. Given that the, you know, the whole point, maybe not the whole point, but one of the recurring features of Doctor Who is to make common or garden things seem quite scary to kids. You would have thought that insects would be a, an obvious one to kind of make more of, you know, to exploit more over the years, but in nearly 60 years, perhaps it's, a, it's a, a, an unexplored theme. It's maybe, you know, there was, I'm, I'm told there was quite a lot of feedback, negative feedback after Planet of the Spiders back in the day. But I suppose there's maybe an element of what can they do convincingly. Negative feedback, no. negative feedback because of the special effects, you mean? Well, no, just because people don't like spiders, and there was, yeah, there was, you know, alleged, you know, alleged sort of stories that people were, you know, kids were terrified, blah blah blah. I mean, um, apparently there's a whole, apparently there's a whole Freudian thing about the why people are scared of spiders, but I'm not going to go into it here because I think it's suitable for. (laughs) But um, 
but I don't know. I mean, there was also there was a you know a giant ant in Planet of the Giants, and you know quite early on in Hartnell. So I mean, it's it's maybe a, it's maybe a combination of knowing that they would get into a lot of bother if they did it properly, but also maybe the effect you know being able to do it realistically. I mean, there was there was a story in last year's series. Um, which I believe you haven't seen yet, Tom, um, called Arachnids in the UK, which not in last year's series, the year before, which was, you know, which was really quite full on. I thought it was great. Um, a bit a bit heavy handed with its message, um, perhaps. No. Also inspired one of my best Radio Times profile pictures. So that was good. But it's, I mean, that was, the, the, the effects in that were quite good. I don't know. It's it's maybe just a case of once you've done it once, you can't, you can't really do it again, can you? Talking of commoner garden, Tom, as you said, Dave mentioned their planet of giants. That does have the giant fly as well in it, as yeah. well as the earthworms and the ants. But then I always thought that was a bit of a cop-out because obviously what they decided was, well, we want giant insects, but we don't have the special effects to, to, to animate them. So let's kill them all and then make them big. Yeah. <laughs> Which, you know, a, a, dead, a dead fly, however large, poses somewhat less of a threat than, of course. than a live one. You're absolutely right though. I mean, it's, it's an absolute science fiction staple, you know, from like, you know, the shrinking man through to, to them, you know, the film with the giant movie with the giant ants. It's the sort of thing, you know, that's, that does pop up quite often. It's, but you're right, it's surprising that Doctor Who hasn't done it maybe as often as it maybe could. Sorry, that was complete. <laughs> that didn't add anything. <laughs> no, no, that's fine. I, I like references to all 1950s B-movies, especially them, which is one of my favourites. Yeah. Right, on that note, let's crack on with three of the stories where the producers did decide that big insects should play a big role. And the first is... My eyes are so sore. Everything seems to, to flare when I look at it. It is the atmosphere of this planet. Rest. I will watch for Zappi. Are your wings healed? I shall never fly again. No. Um, why, did, why did they make us do... Why did they make us heap this vegetation into the acid streams? It is the raw material for the carcinoma. Where the Zarpi live, fed into these pools, it is drawn to the center through underground streams. And as we pour it in, the carcinome grows and reaches out across vortex. Well, what lies at the center? None of us have ever seen it and lived, but we call it the Anomus. Yes, we are heading to Vortis for the web planet which was the fifth serial of season two of Doctor Who. As with the word before them, the creatures of Vortis were designed to be memorable, as the show was yet to produce a monster to rival the Daleks. Webb also had the highest average viewing figure of the Hartnell era, with a rating of 13.5 million. The concept first came to Bill Strutton, as he recalled being bitten by a bull ant as a child and seeing insects fight. He also recognised the merchandising opportunities Doctor Who afforded, with Terry Nation's Daleks being his point of comparison. Script editor Dennis Spooner latched onto the idea, believing it could be a parable about socialism, with the Zarbi and the Monoptera as the oppressed and the oppressors respectively. 
Webb was by far the most technically ambitious and experimental story produced by Verity Lambert. While some believe it nobly tried to extend the possibilities of Doctor Who, others felt that it was simply overambitious. It was also novel in terms of its advertising, since it was the first Doctor Who story to ever have a trailer. Director Richard Mark Duskin, correct. Thank you, TARDIS Wiki, because we've all seen the Dalek Invasion of Earth trailer on the DVDs. Skipping over that, director Richard Martin was irked by this as he felt it gave away too much of the plot as clips from later episodes were shown. Verity Lambert believed he was upset over the inclusion of a scene showing a Zarbi entering the television studio, justified by her as the application of a familiar setting designed to stop children from fearing the alien. Very good. Well, Web Planet, it's, it's kind of assumed a certain um, iconic status among many iconic episodes and not always for the right reasons. I have a huge amount of affection for this, basically because Doctor Who and the Zarbi was one of the original six Target paperbacks issued back in the 70s. And it was the first one I read, no, sorry, it was the second one I read that had the, the first Doctor in it. And I was aware already that Doctor and the Daleks wasn't, um, at, at the beginning of the story, it wasn't an accurate representation of how the story actually went when it was broadcast. I knew that much. So I knew that Doctor Who and the Zarbi was far more accurate from what was actually broadcast. And I read it as we all did in those days, you know, until you develop more mature reading habits, you tend to read your favourite books over and over again. I read Doctor Who and the Zarbi by, by Bill Strutton half a dozen times in the time that I, I owned it. And I, I just thought it was fantastic. I thought, you know, because the novel, you, you're, you're imagining what the special effects were. You're imagining these giant ants walking around, the monoptera flying, and your mind does a better job at creating the special effects than the BBC ever could. So until years later, I actually finally saw the adventure uh, as broadcast. To me, it was something that was, yes, ambitious, but it was incredibly captivating. The, the imagination within it, within the storyline, I thought was, was pretty groundbreaking. For me, it sat alongside genuine science fiction classics. You know, I was using a lot of Asimov and Arthur C. Clarke and Robert Heinlein at the time. And I put Web Planet in there because I just thought the, the concepts were really thought-provoking. As for the actual television show itself, when I finally got around to see it, the first time I saw a glimpse of it was when Who's Doctor Who was broadcast in 1977. You know, the, the Everyman uh, documentary. Uh-huh. Um, that, that is now uh, features, well, featured on the original Tales of Wine DVD, but now we've got it on the Blu-ray box set. I watched that on a Sunday night, really excited, because it was the first time I had seen any clips from the old black and white Doctor Who. And one of the clips was of uh, the Web Planet. And I remember saying to my friend at the time, that looks really bad. But it didn't <laughs> matter, because it was already a much beloved tale. Um, when I finally saw it on DVD years later, you know, you accept it for what it is, but it, but you cannot fault the the ambition in it. And I just think it's it's an amazing bit of television. I think the first time I saw a clip from the Web Planet probably be the same time Dave did. It would be in 1988 when there was a trailer for Silver Nemesis. Oh, and it showed right. the clip with uh, Ian saying, oh, it's no use, the Doctor's not getting through to them. 
And right. I must watched. have watched that over and over and over again. For me, the Web Planet, it's first time I saw it in film was when VHS came out. And um, I didn't expect too much from it because I obviously realised, having read the novelization, that there's no way that the imagination that Bill Strutton had for that would be replicated on screen feasibly in the 60s. And so it proved to be, I mean, for me, if you watch it in one go, you're asking for trouble. It's really, really slow. Yes, there's lots of alien world building on. It's the first Doctor Who story, in fact, possibly the only Doctor Who story on TV, not to feature any humans other than the regular cast. But it's slow. It's slow. It's just... This, I think it's one of those cases where the imagination and the concept of it is fantastic, and it would be so much better to realise something like that now. But then the practicalities of it make it do look they do give it that 1950s B-movie look. Here's the insectoid ones. Uh, oh, look, there we go. Here comes the Minoptra. Oh, no, hang on. They're butterfly people. And what the hell the Opterra are meant to be, I have no idea. Um, I think there's it's also the web plan and it gives the best TV credit ever. Insect Movement by Rosalind de Winter, which I always laugh at every single time I watch it. Uh, when I rewatched it for this, I actually did it one episode a night and that made it far more palatable. Um, rather than trying to overdo it all. And you do get an appreciation of the fact there is a journey there and that the, it's a slow invasion rather than expecting it all to be over and done with in just over two and a half hours. So I'd recommend if anybody hasn't watched it in a while and thinks, oh, I mean, give it a go, definitely do it one episode at a time or one episode and then leave it a few hours and then watch the next one as it definitely benefits from that. It's not my favourite Hartnell by a long shot, but the regulars are fantastic. And particularly in episode one, Hartnell is completely mental. He's with his <laughs> and um, talking to himself and just his hand gestures. He's obviously having the time of his life, having a great time at that point. And then it all goes serious from there on in once the space hairdryer goes on his head. I quote a little bit from the television companion because there's an interesting con comment from someone who took part in the audience research survey after this show was broadcast. Um, we always start off by saying how stupid this is and how far-fetched, but we always watch it and end up sitting on the edge of our seat and thoroughly enjoying it, especially this one. That's, that's for me, that's kind of what I think about the web planet. It was the first time I watched it in a very long time. I think the last time I watched it probably was about 2008 when I was doing my when I started my big sort of time team inspired sort of watch through. And I remember back in 2008 really enjoying it because I'd, similar to what Kenny was saying there about doing it an episode at a time, my, whenever I, when I did my big watch through, I sort of limited myself to no more than two episodes a day, just, just to kind of, so I could appreciate the, you know, the serial quality of it, you know. Very wise. And I remember at one point actually cheating and doing the last two episodes of The Celestial Toymaker and the first episode of The Gunfighters because I was just desperate to see what happened next. So I was loving it. You'll probably be surprised that um, I've never read the Zarbi. Ah. I haven't read the Zarbi. I didn't have it when I was a kid. It was one of the the last four or five books I needed to complete my set. My pal Steve Higgins actually got me a copy a few years ago now. So it was one of the last few that I didn't have. So I've never read it. So I I've, I didn't, anytime I watched it on telly, you know, or, or DVD or video or whatever, you know, I didn't have the the prior sort of experience to the story. It's interesting. I, I remember enjoying it a awful lot in 2008, two episodes at a time coming to the program naturally sort of without you know doing it all the whole thing sort of in in order was the best way you know was the best way to do it because you just sort of came to it and you watched it on its own terms rather than trying to watch it with you know 30 40 odd years worth of added sort of continuity and 
and thoughts. And, and this time, I thought it was, it was fine. As Kenny says, it's really slow. There was moments when I sort of thought, you know, God, they could have made, this could have been a four-parter and there would have been no loss of incident at all because it's very, very long-winded. But there's a lot of nice moments. There's some nice character stuff with um, Barbara and Vicky and there's some funny stuff with Ian and the Doctor and, the, you know, with their, you know, their space anthrax in the first episode and that. It's the sort of story you can watch, if you, you could watch it with a critical eye and absolutely rip it to shreds if you felt like it. But I think that kind of goes against the, um, the spirit of it. It's quite a... It's almost fairy tale-like in some ways because, you know, there's no, as Kenny said, there's no you know, real sort of humans to kind of empathise with. And, you know, this is the first time, actually, I think, watching it that I was able to identify Martin Jarvis. <laughs> I think it's one of these stories when it deserves an awful lot of credit just because at that time, Doctor Who hadn't really settled down. They didn't really, it didn't have a formula. They were still trying new things all the time. And it deserves a lot of credit for doing that because... You know, it's the sort of story that a later producer would have gone, no, there's no way in heck. But in, you know, 1965, whenever it was, they sort of, 64 maybe, they sort of thought, no, we're going we're gonna to do our best on this. So it definitely deserves a lot of credit for that. Some bits work better than others, definitely. It's quite jarring sometimes when they cut from studio stuff to film stuff. And obviously there's the bit when the, the Zarbi wallops the camera quite early on. But none of that gets <laughs> in the way because there's just, there's just so much imagination Two three points and just to add on. Firstly, the music is superb. I absolutely love it. From Les Structures Sonores, uh, who would later have their music used in um, Galaxy 4 as well. I think it adds to the other world ethereal quality, just obviously being all being produced in glass, which I think is really, really effective and memorable. What do you guys think about it? Spooky, I guess, which is the, the intention. Um, very mysterious. Yeah, I thought it was very atmospheric, which is what you want. Yeah, atmospheric. So what it adds, it, I mean, it doesn't even um, doesn't really feel like music. It it feels just like part of the ambient sort of atmosphere of Vortus, I think. You know. And the other thing, what I was going to say was the um, the cover of the novelisation. For years, I never quite grasped that the Zar- the Zarbi on the cover, the the angle I looked at was I looked at as if they were like space whales. You could only see one Absolutely. side of their fins. That's what I thought. I didn't know they were the heads of the Zarbi. I thought. They were a weird kind of space vehicle coming towards you. Yes, right. I'm glad it's not me. Yeah. Right, hang on. I'm going to, going to reach behind me now and grab the book off the shelf to see. <laughs> hang on. Tom, I've got, I've, got a, I've got a joke for you. All right, okay. Okay, well, Dave's doing that. Um, what happened when the frozen water put on listening devices? What, what happened when the frozen water put on listening devices? Tom, any ideas where he's going with this? I just want him to get it over with. Right, okay. On you go, Ken. The Ice Warriors. Anyway, Dave, how's your novelisation found going? What am I looking at exactly? Well, you know the, the head of the Zarbi. You know, the, oh, right. right. Right, okay, yeah. Right, yeah, I do see what you mean. Yeah, yeah they do, don't they? I thought they were little kind of weird space shuttles. Yeah, they could yeah, be flippers or something. Yeah. 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 Wow. <laughs> we'll have to I put the... I was the only one. That's, that's fascinating. We'll have to put, the novel, put a copy of the novelisation up on the social so we'll see what people yeah. think. <laughs> that's brilliant. <laughs> I might even actually have to read it now. Oh, it's very good. And, and the chap, there's only six chapters. Each chapter represents exactly one episode, which is unusual oh. for the... For the uh, target novelizations yeah just looking at that i can see that that's brilliant hey one thing we should mention of course that one episode of um of the web planet is called escape to danger 
which became an absolute sort of stalwart regular occurrence in the Target novelisation. Terence Dick's classic. Definitely. One other web planet related, Oops. I'm going to do a Tom now and do a web planet related anecdote. Um, this one time I was chatting to Martin Jarvis <laughs> and uh, he was well, coming just, up to the Boswell Book Festival in Ayr to yeah. do a chat about his book and uh, I was I was doing all that stuff and I was offered to Martin Jarvis interview and thought yep I'll take that one quite happily and I did mention the web planet to him and he actually remembers it very fondly and says you know what it was an early tv credit and it's you know helped me get my foot in the door to get a lot more so there's a positive to it it may look like a daft man in a butterfly suit flopping about but it meant a lot to him, so that's really nice to know. Very good. What, what, was, what was Martin's book about, Ken? Was it just, was it just an autobiography sort of thing? It was, it was autobiography, yeah. Cool. Very interesting. Cool. So when we left the web planet at the end of episode six, we knew we would never go back there again, didn't we? Indeed. Well, and then came along Big Finish. You weren't born wingless, were you? No. I had wings and was beautiful once. Captains and princes flocked to see my display. I could have been a queen. What happened? I was my father's daughter. The notorious Acheron had opinions and he voiced them loudly. He became unpopular. He made enemies. They hurt you to get to him? Not his opponents, but they had followers and some of them were prepared to hurt my father by any means. I was foolish. I allowed myself to be lured by lights and bright colours and then, well, then it was all over for me. Most were caught. Some even expressed remorse. Adila, I'm so sorry. They wanted to drive us away and silence my father. They succeeded. I don't know what to say. Are you strong enough to climb down? There's something in the forest I want to show you. Amy, tell us what TARDISWiki.com says about the return to the web planet. Right, it's quite to the point, this one. Um, return to the web planet was the fifth Doctor Who bonus story released by Big Finish Productions. It was written by Daniel Oma. Oh, God, Oma, how would you pronounce that? Omani. Right, it was written by him and featured <laughs> Peter Davison as the fifth Doctor and Sarah Sutton as Nyssa. This is the first audio to feature the Zarbi and the Binoctera and the return to Vortis. It's also the first story since the novel Twilight of the Gods in 1996 to feature either race in a prominent role. Kenny. Is that Kenny, it? <laughs> Kenny, King of Big Finish, tell us what you think about Return to Their Planet. Thank you for the title, Tom, but I'm actually the official historian of Big Finish. So I'll Same take time. King, it's even better. Don't tell Nick I said that. Um, yes, Return to the Web Planet. This was, this was released in uh, 2008 as a subscriber exclusive at the time when Big Finish were doing just sequels to your TV stories, the likes of um, the Crotons and such like, where we had returned to various things or return of. And in this case, we went back to Vortis uh, in Daniel O'Manny's story. Um, it's, quite a, it's quite an interesting one. Is obviously it's, um, the Zarbi and the Minoctra are at the heart of it. There's no animus. And it sort of builds on the culture established there although it gets thrown in with human colonization and we get to the lodestone and um, we discover there's monotrous cities now. And it's quite a, 
it's quite an extrapolation of culture. It's not the way that I would have imagined things going. Um, but that's not to say that uh, what I say is gospel. It's a tale that is very, I mean, it, it definitely feels akin to the original. Obviously, we've got sound effects being lifted and music that's in a similar kind of vein. But the characters do, do feel slightly more vast, perhaps one could say, than the originals. We get a bit of a chance to get to meet these new characters, these new Minoctra with the likes of Hedila. Um, Interesting, I will give you some factoids to do with this. This story had working titles of Consider Her Ways and Synthetic Men of the Web Planet, which definitely sounds really like well. Yeah. Synthetic Men of Mars is the ninth John Carter book by Edgar Rice Burroughs, so that's obviously what they were thinking about there. And Consider Her Ways, well, there you go. Consider Her Ways was also the name of our short story by John Wyndham, which gave its which was then used as a title for a collection of his short stories. And that's a story also basically about the way ants live and operate their, their, um, their sort of life systems and stuff. So there you go. This podcast is in, infotainment. It's a good thing I'm here, isn't the it? highest synthetic, order. Synthetic, well, that's interesting, actually. Yeah, Synthetic Men of Mars, it's, it's, um, it's one, Carter's not in it too much, but it's, it's a good one. It's quite underrated by a lot of people, but um, one of my favourites, definitely. The, also, the original version, there was um, some references to TV Comics Web Planet sequel and Christopher Bullis's novel Twilight of the Gods uh, were snuck in, but they were all removed, uh, so it kept it going. And there's some nice wee touches there, like um, the Hedyla Zarbi getting named Arbra, obviously with a, a nod to Barbara, and um, with Nyssa being called Anilsa, it's that um, way of getting names slightly wrong with Heron obviously being Ian in the web planet. It's it's perfunctory. It does the job. Um, it's never going to win any polls as the best story ever, but at the same time, it's not an absolute stinker. Davey, what do you think of it? You've listened to um, it once recently, haven't you? Well, yeah. I mean, I listened to it a few years ago, like four or five years ago. I think that was when the of my big, big finish catch-up. And it kind of, yeah, it was, I don't really have much of a memory of it, but I listened, when we decided to do this one a couple of weeks ago, I listened to it um, on my walk one day and it basically went in one ear and out the other. That might more be do with the fact my own state of mind and ability to concentrate at the moment, given everything that's going on in the world. But I listened to it again today um, and it kind of landed with me a little bit better. But I mean, I have to say, I felt it was, I had a few problems with how it was, it, there was quite a, it took a long time to get to the point, I felt. There was quite a lot of preamble before we got to, you know, any explanation or real clarification about what was actually going on or what the, the crux of the plot was. I thought it, I thought it was all right. I mean, um, you know, the Doctor, he also quotes the, he the, uses the consider her ways sort of phrase at one point, which, which leapt out at me, which is quite interesting. You're probably telling that was a little more than a little bit underwhelmed by it. I mean, I I don't I don't want to say I didn't like it. I just I thought it was all, it was it was all right. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of agree with both of you. Um, it's not at all my favourite of uh, of Big Finish Adventures. Um, I kind of if I had to balance it, I would say I disliked it more than I liked it because towards the end of it, it just it was it was complicated, which is fine. But it wasn't interesting enough to focus, to work out your way through the, the narrative. It just seemed unnecessarily complicated. Um, and by the end of it, I, I thought, oh, who cares? If they'd flagged up the whole, 
you know, human cloning sort of repopulation sort of thing a bit earlier on. It might have it might have made you a little bit more invested in it, you know. There's a, there actually was a deleted scene right at the start in the script, which had uh, the spaceship crashing, but that was removed as it felt it gave away too much too soon. Right, right. Maybe a mistake. I think so. There was there was one aspect of it I, I found a slightly disturbing. Uh, the girl Monoptera. The whole bit about her losing her wings. I found that a bit uncomfortable because it was clearly an oblique reference to to rape, if I'm honest. You know, Dyla. Yeah, you know, this is a girl who's, you know, and it's an old story, it's an old kind of cliche, if you like, about stories in the Wild West usually, but, you know, there's a, a father who, uh, who makes himself unpopular and resented and the, the the stupid townsfolk take their revenge on the daughter. Now, usually they take their revenge on the daughter in a, an appalling way. And this seemed to me, the way that this has been written, it, it, it just left a bad taste in my mouth. I just thought, you know, taking this young monoptera and tearing off her wings in a very violent and emasculating way was clearly some kind of oblique reference to rape. And of course, it's not rape, it's removing the wings of an octo, so that's how they get away with it. But I, it left the same bad taste in my mouth, frankly. Yeah, there's kind of nasty sort of implications about all of it, yeah. Yeah. And also, I think my problem with it is also, it's only 50 minutes long, and it's a single episode. The, the, you know, there's no, there's no cliffhangers. Aye. And if you get to around about the halfway mark, you can see why there's no cliffhanger. There was nothing really to have a cliffhanger about. Mm-hmm. But, but mm-hmm. with all the kind of, the exposition about the Earth colonists, with all of the the observations about the, the you know the the herd of Zarbies changing direction and oh it's heading in the direction of Monoptera Village. Well, what Monoptera Village? We've only talked about it. We haven't even seen it or heard it. And I just by the end of it, I just thought, oh, just get in the TARDIS and go. Just yeah, you know, <laughs> leave them to it, mate. And it's all very well having a different antagonist from the original i totally get that you wouldn't want to bring back the big bad from the web planet but on this occasion i i I couldn't really work out who the baddie was who the goodies were yeah it just left me a bit cold yep don't really have anything to add to that to be honest (laughs) do you kenny um there's one scene that i quite like the the visual imagery of when you've got um the fifth doctor flying with a set of pretend wings which is ridiculous but uh, quite entertaining at the same time and in a similar vein, I like the idea that he rode Arbra, uh, <laughs> the Zarbi. And that is, that is quite a nice... Uh, here's a, something you can perhaps explain to me, uh, Kenny. And it's probably just to do with cost. But it seems to me, and I was, I was, there was another, there was a sixth Doctor adventure I was listening to where I, I wondered this as well. When the action is taking place outside, you can clearly listen that it's recorded in a studio. Would it be technically too difficult to actually record outdoor scenes outdoors so that you get the actual sound of being outdoors yes in terms of getting it up you mean you're having to wait then for to make sure there's no planes passing by there's no people passing by the logistics of getting it all together would just make it too awkward and obviously there's uncontrollable elements like birds or whatever and a crow starting off on somebody's mid-speech so sadly I'm I'm just surprised that we haven't got to the technology yet that can accurately replicate the, the the feeling the sound of of being outdoors, albeit recorded in a studio. I thought we would have got there by now. Well, you know, I, th- I think they're generally quite good, you know, that sort of stuff. I mean, I can, 
I think in the whole history of everything that the Big Finish have done, I think there's only been one story that I can think of where the sound design has failed, and that's because you know, the guy that did it for them wasn't really aware of what they were after. I mean, I listened to the latest main range story during the week there, um, Scott Stuff, that's called New Six Doctor Story, and you know it's set in France at the tail end of the war, and it was it was terrific. I mean, the ambient sound of the crowds and all that, and the forest and the roads, and it was it was perfect. Um, I th- no, I think they're um, they're always really good at that sort of stuff. I think it's that ele- you maybe have to go for a slight element of, you know, suspend your disbelief. But I've, I've never had that. I've never had the problem with that. Okay, maybe just me. <laughs> it's just you. Our next stop in the insect verse is that. What, can we call it that now? Is that rubbish? Insectiverse. <laughs> Insectiverse. Okay, I like that. Our next stop in the insectiverse is plant of the dead in the city the oceans mountains the wildlife and a hundred billion people turned to sand all those voices in carmen's head she's hearing them die i've got sand in my hair that's dead people oh that's disgusting oh something destroyed the whole of san helio yes but in my hair Malcolm, tell me the bad news. Oh, you are clever. It is bad news. It's the wormhole, Doctor. It's getting bigger. We've gone way past 100 Bernards. I even invented a name for that. Here is what TARDISWiki.com says about that. Plant of the Dead was the 2009 Easter special of Doctor Who. It was notable as being the first and so far only Easter special of Doctor Who. Keeping with the previous Christmas special's theme of having the holiday take place in the episode, it is Easter during the Doctor's adventure. Plant of the Dead was also notable for introducing the he will knock four times and something is returning arcs, something that would come up again in the following story, The Waters of Mars, and ultimately conclude in the two-part serial, The End of Time. From a production point of view, Plant of the Dead was the first episode of BBC Wales Doctor Who to be written by two people, Russell T. Davis and Gareth Roberts. The most notable point about the Plant of the Dead was that it was the 200th Doctor Who story, and as such, the bus featured in the episode was named the 200th to connote the celebration. At roughly the same time as the premiere of the 200th story, Doctor Who magazine featured a list of the favourite stories as voted by the fans since the first adventure and Unearthly Child was broadcast. Planet of the Dead clocked in at 99. It was also the first episode to be filmed and broadcast in high definition. From this episode onward, the series would remain in HD format. I didn't know that last bit, that's quite interesting. I remember them trailing the bit using the, when they were trailing the BBC HD channel, they used the shot of Davy letting the sand fall through his fingers. Right. Remember that? Yeah, I remember that at the time. Right, Davy, tell us what you think of Planet of the Dead. Yeah, I remember when it was on because it was that time of the year we got used to, you know, in the, the modern golden age when a new series would start right about Easter. And um, it was a bit weird when a new, you know, another 10 or 12 episodes didn't follow after it. I, I really enjoyed it at the time. I thought Lee Evans was absolutely fantastic. I like, loved his character. The, you know, scenes at the end with the Doctor and him were just lovely. Um, I liked the unit lady from Turn Left getting a proper crack at the story. I, it, was, it was a lot of fun. It was, if any, in some ways, I thought it was a little, a little disposable. But, you know, a lot of the special episodes are like that. You know, they're, they're just they're there to entertain. They do the job. And um, I thought it was fine. I, was, I wasn't the biggest fan of um, Michelle Ryan's character. She was just a little bit too up herself. But Davey, by this point, was, 
you know, Dave, that's probably just the characterization, obviously, but, you know, David Tennant was, you know, doing it in his sleep by this point. He was just, like, you know, untouchable. There was, there was some just really proper, good, classic Doctor Who moments, like, you know, the death of the bus driver and, you know, all the stuff with the, the aliens, alien insects and some real, real sort of drama and some real tension and some real joy in it as well. I, it's, it's one that I like a lot. And on this occasion, the insects were the, were, were the allies, the goodies. Yeah, of course, yeah. As Kenny mentioned earlier on, you know, Russell had, had done quite a few of these sort of anthropomorphic, anthro, yeah, you know, you know what I mean? Sort of um, <laughs> humans wearing, in, wearing animal masks. And, um, you know, they're probably on the cheaper end of the, of the, you know, the, um, the spectrum, you know, with the whole um, just basically just wearing boiler suits. Um, but no, they, yeah, they were okay. And it's, um, you know, it's, there's so much, you know, extra sort of, Think, I'm sure you probably both remember all the drama about the bus getting damaged when it was taken to Dubai for the filming and all that sort of stuff. So they had to get to rewrite it, and the mill had to jiggle, you know, a little bit what they'd done and to reflect the fact that the bus got damaged. Ah, it's a good one. I like it a lot. I mean, it's not it's not one that I'd put in my top ten or anything like that, but it's it's one that you know it's it's an easy enough watch. I always found it was quite funny for being an Easter special that the Easter element is over and done with in about seven seconds when the Doctor says, "Do you fancy a bit of Easter egg?" Basically. <laughs> Well, then there's the very funny line where he says, you know, my favourite one was the, the original one. And I'll tell you what really happened, and then he gets distracted. Yep. <laughs> well, that was quite clever. And given that Rusty Davis is an atheist, I was dreading what he was going to come up with. <laughs> so I find it, the, the whole um, the whole original basis of the story would be quite interesting from what Gareth did. Because I know that Clayton Hickman said on Twitter that the original was very different and he thought it was one of the best things Gareth had ever written. But obviously I know no more than that. But I can only imagine what it would be like. Davey, have you got anything, any light to shed oh, on that? Funny, funny you should say that, Ken, because I, um, I spoke to Gareth the other day actually and asked him, um, told him we were going to be discussing the story on the, the podcast uh, and... You know, asked him if he had any sort of thoughts about it or any, you know, asked him, well, actually, asked him if he did any gossip. <laughs> um, asked him if he did any sort of, you know, thoughts about it, looking back on it. Um, and this is what he said. I will not do an impression. The thing that strikes me looking back from this distance is how odd the cat burglar character is, because such people don't really exist. And that was very odd coming after Rose, Martha and Donna. It felt like she wandered in from another show. It takes the baseline of reality away, which is doubly odd when you consider that it's about ordinary people on a bus stranded on an alien planet. It's a strangeness on top of a strangeness which breaks the rules. I'm quite a purist when it comes to the real world and fantasy fiction. I think it should be as real as possible. And that goes for Unit 2. I think this is a knock-on effect that makes Planet of the Dead feel a little bit strange. But then again, it was intended as a breezy fun special. There was a brief consideration that the guest assistant should be a Julie Walters-style mum. And I think that would have been better. But coming after three years of really strong assistant mums, I can see why we didn't. Um, my overall feeling is that it was fun, but it didn't gel somehow. So, from, from Big G himself. I have a few comments, a few observations. Mm. Um, first of all, I, I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed it when it first broadcast. I enjoyed it slightly more this time because I just was, you know, accepting it for what it was. And it was a good laugh. It had some great visuals, some great science fiction concepts. I should say from the very beginning that its central science fiction concept was stolen, um, or sorry, it was an homage to a short story by Stephen King called The Langoliers, which oh, was yeah, of produced in a, it was one of four stories that was in a book called Different Seasons, and uh, which also included Rita Hayworth in The Shawshank Redemption. 
um, and the, uh, a short story called The Body, which was later filmed as Stand By Me. But The Langoliers, which was also made into a dreadful, dreadful movie, because it was made at a time when the special effects just couldn't keep up, was essentially about a plane that goes through a, you know, a tear in the fabric of time. And you can only survive going through it if you're a passenger on this plane. You can only survive it if you're asleep for some reason. If you're awake when you go through, your body is, is, is destroyed. Um, one guy goes through it and the only thing that survives of his body is, I think it's a knee implant, a metal knee implant that, that he had. And the, the knee implant survives the, the, the transfer, but he personally doesn't. And at the end, when they're trying to get the way back, one guy has to pilot the plane. He sacrifices himself while everyone else is deprived of oxygen to force them to sleep so they can survive going back through. But when they're in the other side of the, the, this, this time blip, there's an oncoming storm of these things, which they nicknamed the Langoliers, which are exactly what you see in, um, in Planet of the Dead. It's a swarm of ravenous beasts whose job it is to eat reality once time is finished with it. So wow. they land at an airport and everything is fake, the food is fake, and it turns out they're living in used up time and they have to get back on the plane before the Langoliers arrive and eat up reality. And one of their number who's left behind is eaten up by these things and they manage to get back through the, the, the tear in space and time and back to, back to reality. So, I mean, there's... there's it wasn't the first time Rusty Davis had nicked something from other authors, and everyone does this anyway. Yeah. He just does it with less subtlety, I think. He, he stole <laughs> yes. the whole idea of his dark materials for the second season of Doctor Who, when you know when they had the, the alternate reality, the alternate dimension where airships instead of this internal combustion engine. Um, and at the end of that season, when the Doctor and Rose were on either side of the of the tear between the two dimensions and they, they, they loved each other but they couldn't touch each other. That's completely lifted from the end of the Amber Spyglass. However, moving on, first of all, see at the museum, you know, the International Museum, where this, uh, so this golden cup is being stored. Who ever heard of four armed security guards in a museum? Yeah, yeah. I mean, come on, on Russell. <laughs> and also, there's quite a lot of other um, movie references so there's Mission Impossible you know the first Mission Impossible with uh, Tom yep. Cruise um, when he breaks into CIA headquarters and he you know he's down on the line and he he's balancing the way that Michelle Ryan was doing and also right. they, Jones, they so. used that in the, the Spice the Spice Girls movie as well didn't they you would know better than I did I was just what? about to say that Dave <laughs> I, I have seen as much of the Spice Girls as I've seen of uh, the new Doctor Who <laughs> and, there's, and there's also Indiana Jones, you know, when she puts the, the bag down to keep the balance yeah. on the pedestal. Right. Corruption among Transport for London employees, I've got written here. <laughs> <laughs> Does Sadiq Khan know that his drivers are liable to <laughs> let people onto their buses without an Oyster card by accepting diamonds for personal use? No, that's shocking. Who would have been mayor at this time in 2009? 2009, that would have been Boris. There we mm. go, it's his fault. Yeah. <laughs> and then you've got the same bus driver with his diamonds in his pocket, driving along a main street in London, pursued by 100 blue lights. 
not and he stopping. Yeah. No, yeah. why wouldn't you? Um, unless you thought maybe they were after the diamonds. You've got the bus, the, the woman character, the woman Carmen on the bus, and I've labelled her as the character of convenience. You know, she she's she's on the bus. She happens to be on the bus. She's psychic. And if she hadn't been on the bus, you know, she has a particular role to play of warning that death is coming, warning that they're in the planet of the dead. And I thought, well, it's just a bit of a lazy way of moving the plot onwards to have somebody yeah. who has to know everything. It's a bit like, I don't know, you remember this, David. Um, remember in the Marvel Universe where all the mutants were removed? Yes. Aye, no, House of M. No, not House of M. It was House of M. It was House of M. Was it? Aye. Yeah, aye. And there was a, a new dimension created where none of the characters knew that they were in a new dimension. But there was one little girl that they wrote into it who could remember the old universe. And using her, they worked out how to get back to, how to reverse what had happened. Yeah. Um, and it was such a lazy narrative device. Let's just bring somebody in who knows everything. And I felt that Carmen, this was a little bit like that. Yeah, it's a bit. Yeah, it's a bit. Um, it's a bit handy. It's a bit of a shorthand. What do we think about um what Gareth was saying about Lady Christina as a believable character? I found her quite interesting. Um, because I think what the Russell was effectively going with was a version of the Fourth Doctor and the Second Romana, where you've got two people who've got an aristocratic background and uh, sharing the bands. Um, I mean, I don't think she's um the worst character by by a million miles that's ever been in Doctor Who. Yes, she is divorced from reality, but there's still something I can imagine there would be these indolent, you know, children of the multimillionaires who, you know, they've done their schooling, then what do I do next? And they have that element of boredom. So yes, I can see there might be a hint, a slight glimmer. Yes, I'm stretching it, I know, but there potentially could be something there. The big finish audio stuff she's done is great. Um, in fact, uh, one was written by a writer who's about um, two and a half miles from you there, Tom, and about uh, three and a half miles from me. Um, another one, Donnie McLean. And uh, Donnie McLean? It's not Don, Donnie McLeary. Don McLean. But all this flying around in vehicles, it's got me all confused. Um, we'll have to with American Pie now that you've said that. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you know, for me, it's, it's, an, it's a decent enough story. Um, I quite like Christina. Um, Tenant's fantastic. My uh, my weird one with this is, I went to visit Cardiff one time and missed my usual turn off to go to Chlenaden, and um, although it spelled something else completely different, you'd never know that was how it's pronounced. And um, missed the usual turn, so we had to come in another way into Cardiff, and um, ended up. So where the hell are we? I have no idea. And then just realised it was actually driving through that particular bridge from the start and the end of the story. It was quite a bizarre experience just thinking, oh my God, this is for the Planet of the Dead tunnel. You did that deliberately. <laughs> oh, Jen, we've got lost, honestly. It's like Kenny's holiday plans. <laughs> to Lanzarote and then he says, oh, look, it just so happens to be the location for Planet of Fire. Yeah. Interesting. What is it? Mm, coincidence? No, it's, it's, it's an enjoyable, enjoyable bit of fluff as a story. I mean, it was. It, it obviously starts setting up, you know, Wee Davy's sort of ultimate arc. You know, he will knock four times and all that sort of stuff. And your song is ending. It's doing a bit of foreshadowing at the end. It's um, it's a lot of fun. It's it's just there, you know, a bit of bank holiday 
nonsense, really. And it was, and it was, you know, the flying bus was obviously about Harry Potter, but you know, why not? I I like Lady Christina. I thought she was okay. I was kind of glad they didn't have her as the main companion because all the way through you thought that she's being set up as the new companion, and we're we're obviously expected to believe that and, until he turns her down in the end. Um, I, and I did like the 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 big audio, uh, the big finish audio adventures. Another of whom is written by uh, another mate of mine, Tim Dawson. Um, since we're all dropping clangers in this episode. Um, can I just say about Captain McGambo? Yes. Um, am I the only one who's disappointed that the Langoliers, when they came through after the bus, did not kill her? <gasps> well, I mean, she tried to kill the Doctor. She held a gun at the, at the head of a civilian scientist because he didn't want to do what she was telling him to do. What she wanted to do was close the, uh, what are we calling it, the, the vortex or whatever. The rift. Yeah, rift. Do, yeah. Um, she wanted it closed before the doctor got through, which would have killed him and everyone on the bus. No, she wanted it closed to stop the, the weirdo alien, the, the, the Langoliers, whatever they're yes. called, getting through. But remember yeah, so the argument they had at the end, and the reason she pulled out her gun is because she wanted it closed immediately before the bus came through. Watch it again. I'm telling you. I think she's probably been subsequently sacked by unit. That's why we've never seen or heard of her again. Well, good. Um, Which, on that basis, have we ever seen Lee Evans again as, as Malcolm? Because he was brilliant. No, no, we haven't. I love he, got, he got referenced in the, the 50th anniversary special. Um, was that really funny bit when Kate says, Tell Malcolm the the Ravens need new batteries, but no, it was a shame he never came back. I thought he was terrific. You know, it was a nice bit of celebrity stunt casting, and he was he was brilliant. I liked when he mentioned Quatermass. That was fun. Yeah. Did anyone watch any? Did anyone watch the the John Mills Quatermass on on Talking Pictures the other night? Sky Plusing it. I've got it on Blu-ray. Yeah, I mean, I've I've got it on DVD as well, but it was just quite fun watching it on telly. <laughs> just a bit different from the usual. No, I, I loved um, Quatermass, or the Quatermass Conclusion, as it was called yeah. in supporters at the time. I think that's us, guys. Yep. Could be, yep. Until next week, three meet again. In the meantime, thanks for listening. Uh, please leave uh, comments at our Twitter account, Power of Three Pod. That's three as a number, Power of Three Pod. Download this and previous episodes at our website, uh, powerofthreepod.com. And visit our Facebook page where you can leave messages, suggestions for future episodes, and again, listen to any of the episodes that we've recorded so far. So keep safe, um, stay alert, stay home, and we'll see you next time. Yeah, mind how you go, everyone. Look after yourselves and be good. Yep, absolutely. I echo those sentiments. Definitely don't be crazy and uh, look out for people knocking four times. And of course, before we go... Here's a slightly different version of the Doctor Who theme for you. It's a slight coda to the last episode and also kind of fits in with this episode with the weird and wonderful glassy type music from the web planet. This is the version of the Doctor Who theme which features in the Unbound series with Bernice Summerfield. This was written by Blair Mowat and he is from Edinburgh. So obviously, Scottish musicians are the best for Doctor Who. And here we go. 